Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are going to be talking about nutrition. And my guest is Kara Hawkrider. She is a registered dietitian, and full disclosure, she works at Access to Healthcare. Welcome, Kara. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, this is going to, it's not a small topic. Um, I think a lot of people are interested in this topic. They have a lot of ideas on this topic. But I'd like to start a little bit about you. Uh, what is a registered dietitian, and why did you choose this field? So registered dietitians are people who basically study and practice the science of nutrition. And contrary to popular belief, we are not the food police. We, uh, our job is not to monitor every single morsel of food that goes into your body. Um, and the way I see it, my role really is uh, just to help guide you towards uh, better and healthier choices for you and find what works best for you. Um, because really the term healthy is very broad, like you said, uh, nutrition in general is very broad, um, and it's pretty subjective. Everybody has their own opinions about it, and different things will work better for different people. But tell me a little bit more about what exactly is a registered dietitian. What kind of school? Is there a licensing that you go through? And how does that differ from a nutritionist? Yeah, that's a great question, because nowadays there's no shortage of people giving nutrition advice. Um, so it's important to know where you're getting that information from. So a lot of people use the term registered dietitian or just dietitian um, and nutritionist interchangeably, but they're really not the same thing. Uh, so most people are surprised to learn that there's actually no regulation over the term nutritionist. So anybody can call themselves a nutritionist if they want. You can call yourself a nutritionist. I think I will. <laughs> Your hairdresser can call <laughs> themselves a nutritionist. Your dog can call themselves a nutritionist if they want. Uh, there is really no regulation over it. Um, but on the flip side, the term registered dietitian is highly regulated, and there's a lot of uh, strict protocols kind of in education uh, that you have to go through through in order to actually call yourself a registered dietitian to use that term. Uh, so just to break it down kind of briefly, uh, the first thing is you need to go to an accredited university with an accredited dietetic program, uh, receive at least a four-year bachelor's degree from that uh, institution. Then after that point, uh, you need to uh, go to a internship which is basically where you receive at least uh, 1,200 hours of supervised practice in uh, hands-on settings, so clinical, community, food source, uh, food service, excuse me, the whole gamut. Um, and then that actually isn't even as easy as it sounds because the national match rate for that is about 50%. So about 50% of the people who complete a, a dietetics undergraduate program and then apply to the internship program, don't get matched. And why don't they get matched? There's just not enough internship programs available. Each one only has a limited number of spots, and there's so many people going into this field nowadays um, that it just really hasn't caught up yet. So, Did you get matched right away? I did get matched my first round, um, but many people are highly qualified and do not. Um, so that's just another obstacle. And then once you complete the uh, 1,200 hours, then you are eligible to actually sit for the comprehensive exam. And when I say comprehensive, I mean comprehensive. So it can be on anything. It's not just clinical. It could be on uh, what serving size uh, spoon you need to scoop out certain things. It's anything and everything. <laughs> um, and so once you have passed that exam, then you can use the term registered dietitian. And then even after that, you have to continue uh, to complete continuing education units, of course, to keep your uh, credential. And once you're a registered dietitian, is that good throughout the United States or do you have to apply to every state? Uh, so there is there are two, uh, two aspects there. So one is the credential, and that is a national credential. So that's the registered dietitian credential. And then most states these days have also licensure. 
Um, so that is done on a state-by-state basis. So and that, does Nevada have licensure? Nevada does have licensure. Only a handful of states uh, throughout the country do not have licensure. Um, and just a side note, too, uh, I already described a lot of different hoops that you have to jump through to become a registered dietitian. Um, but starting in 2024, in order to be eligible to sit for uh, the registered dietitian exam, you'll also need to have at least a master's degree as well. So, so explaining to us about a registered dietitian and the amount of time and energy it takes, one needs to be committed. So why did you want to go into this profession? Yeah, so generally speaking, dietetics is not necessarily a field that you just kind of fall into. Most people have some type of defining moment that uh, causes them to pursue this path. Um, and for me, this happened kind of twofold. So Uh, When I was, I'd say in about middle school, uh, my mom was diagnosed with atherosclerosis and uh, basically had to kind of overhaul her diet uh, to uh, improve her health. And I learned some about the impact of diet on health at that that time. But um, really what the defining moment was for me was when I was actually in my freshman year of college. So I initially went to school for civil engineering, um, which was kind of a 180 then. Um, But during that time, I was studying engineering, and I knew I wasn't happy in that field. And then at the same time, I also happened to develop uh, some really bad uh, gastrointestinal digestive issues um, that actually caused me to take a leave of absence from school um, in order to kind of focus on my health and be closer to my doctors. And at that point, I really started diving into the research, uh, mostly just because I was desperate for some type of symptom relief. So I started uh, diving into the research on nutrition and how food affects our bodies. And again, I was already kind of aware of that, of the relationship, um, but this really made me hyper aware of how food was actually affecting my own body. And then, um, I mean... I kind of went from there, and uh, I got really fascinated with nutrition and decided that was the path that I wanted to pursue, and I could turn kind of my hobby, what I was spending all of my time doing anyway, uh, into a career. So at that point, I withdrew from engineering and transferred schools and started down this path um, and haven't really looked back. But Are you happy with the decisions you made? Absolutely. Um, but I will say that as I've gone, um, my reason for wanting to be a dietitian has kind of shifted and evolved. So initially, I was mostly interested in uh, the nutrition aspect of it. So the science, um, how the food affects our bodies, um, what foods are better for us. But um, both living with kind of a chronic condition and also uh, working with a lot of people with it, I've realized that nutrition impacts our lives every single day in so many different ways. Um, And really, it impacts not only our physical health, but also our emotional health and just our overall well-being. Um, And I really love working with people to, like you said, nutrition is such a big topic. I love breaking it down and making it a lot more approachable to people and making them realize that there are small steps that they can take every day to improve their health and they don't have to give up their favorite foods and they can still um, kind of rediscover that joy in eating that a lot of people lose when they think that it has to be either one or the other, their health or their favorite foods. So, Well, thank you for, for telling us your journey and how you got uh, to the to the part of the registered dietitian. I didn't know that um, that you needed that many hours of internship and that it was that hard to get an internship. That's absolutely fascinating. I want to go back to the nutritionist for a minute. Is there any organization that polices that, uh, especially since it's such a huge topic today and we're all so interested in it, that says this is a nutritionist, it's not a registered dietitian? Does anyone police what they say? So... The credential itself comes from uh, the CDR, which is the Commission on Dietetic Registration. So they oversee that aspect of it. Um, But as far as uh, allowing people who are not credentialed to be giving out nutrition information, there's really not anybody necessarily policing that. And that's why you 
see it everywhere. Um, of the main thing is that dietitians are the only ones who can provide medical nutrition therapy, which is basically disease specific um, nutrition recommendations and nutrition treatment plans. Um, but in, as far as general information is concerned, everybody has freedom of speech. So everybody yeah. is allowed, of course, yeah. to do that. So what we're doing is cautioning people. If you're going to mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to read something or you're going to talk with somebody, you want to take a look at where they're getting their information from. And it sounds like a registered dietitian is always the optimum person to yeah. see. When you not to say that some of these other people don't have a lot of knowledge and experience, but when you speak with a registered dietitian, you get that extra layer of security. You you right. can rest assured that they um, have the knowledge and the skills to be um, doing their job. So I want to invite Jackie Gonzalez, who's my producer of the podcast, to come in on the conversation whenever she would like. I know this is something that really interests Jackie as a as a runner and somebody that pays close attention to um, to her nutrition. But let's talk a little bit more about the scientific uh, issues, proteins, carbohydrates, oh, carbohydrates is such a bad word, <laughs> fats, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water. Um, let's break those down a little bit. We need all of those nutrients every day, right? Yes. So everything that you just listed is considered to be an essential nutrient, which basically means that we need it in quantities that are higher than what the body can produce. So we need to get it through the food that we're eating um, in order to maintain optimum nutrition and function. And of these, there's a certain amount that we need each day. Which one, which one can, could you more readily do without in a day? And which one couldn't you? So in order to explain this, I would probably break down those nutrients into two main categories. So we have our macronutrients and our micronutrients. And macronutrients are proteins, carbohydrates, and fat. And we call them macro because we need them in large quantities. Um, So I would say these are the ones that are um, most, not necessarily most important, but we need them in the largest quantities. So... um, The micronutrients, of course, are also very important. They each have their own specific role. However, the amount that we need them is a lot smaller. Let's talk about water because we we are told that we need how many eight-ounce glasses of water a day? Some enormous amount, gallons of water. Is that true? How much water do we need a day? So, yeah, that number, the eight, I believe it's eight glasses of eight ounces of water a day is often uh, recommended, but there's really no scientific backing behind that recommendation. Um, It's just basically an easy number to remember. Um, Water needs vary based on uh, each individual, and it also varies depending on the climate that you live in and your physical activity level. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. So in general, uh, there's not really a recommendation that I could make, but the best uh, recommendation really is, I mean, the best way to judge whether you are hydrated is based on your urine and the color of that. So you want it to be a pale yellow, and at that point, you can tell that you're adequately hydrated. Interesting. So... So the does it matter the type of water we drink, tap water, bottled water? You know, there's a whole lot of discussion on that one, too, that our tap water isn't good for us. Water is water. I mean, of course, you want to be drinking safe water that's not going to make you sick. Uh, but any further than that, it doesn't matter. And actually, um, all different types of beverages count. So there's a misconception as well that... Uh, things that have caffeine in them, like coffee, tea, uh, that those don't count towards your uh, water intake, but that's not true. Uh, Even though they do have kind of a diuretic effect, meaning uh, they make us uh, basically go to the bathroom more and lose water that way, uh, they still are hydrating at the same time, and our bodies can quickly adapt to that diuretic effect, so they're still providing us with hydration. And also, about 80% of our uh, water comes from fluids, but also about 20% comes from foods, like especially fruits and vegetables are high in water. 
Jack, so you had a question. I do. So you're saying that other liquids as well. So would soda and juice be considered a what? Like you're hydrating when you're doing drinking all the sugary drinks as well. Technically, yes. So hydration though is different than like actually nourishing your body. So you're still hydrating your body, but that might not be the best way to go about doing so because of the high sugar content. So there is still water that you're getting from it, but you're also getting a lot of sugar and other things that we would not necessarily uh, recommend. So water is always, of course, a more highly recommended option. That was a great question, Jackie. Um, and that leads us into some discussion about some of these specific words. And certainly we're going to talk about sugar in a minute. But let's talk about carbohydrates. That I don't like boy, that word. I know. Have we <laughs> I beaten, love that word. We have beaten that one to death, haven't we? And we're going to get into, in a few minutes, certain diets. So let's not get into certain diets. Let's talk about carbohydrates because, um, boy, oh, boy, is that. We have taken that one and beaten it to a pulp. Oh, yeah. Well, there's always something. Before it used to be fat, and now it's carbohydrates. <laughs> so uh, carbohydrates, like you said, get a bad rap, but they are not <laughs> necessarily the bad thing that uh, society makes them out to be. So carbohydrates are actually the body's preferred source of energy, meaning that our bodies uh, run mostly off of carbohydrates. Um, but not all carbohydrates are created equal. And that's something that's very important to uh, note too, is that when most people think of carbohydrates, they think of things like uh, pasta, bread, uh, sugary desserts, things like that. And um, yes, that's part of it, but also carbohydrates are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, legumes, all of these really nutritious foods as well, that if we're eliminating carbohydrates, we're eliminating a lot of really important foods and a lot of really uh, nutritious foods from our diet as well. Why does a low-carbohydrate diet supposedly make you lose weight? So low-carbohydrate diets uh, are very effective in making you lose weight quickly, um, and that is because of basically water weight. Um, so carbohydrates, when they're stored in the body, are stored as what we call glycogen. And glycogen is stored in the liver. And attached to each glycogen mo molecule is uh, two to three grams of water. So basically how this works is when you go on a really low carbohydrate diet, you're not taking in those carbohydrates. So your body, of course, again, is looking for carbohydrates because it loves carbohydrates. So it starts digging into your stores. And at that point, it breaks into your glycogen and uses that to burn that for fuel. And at that point, when it burns it, it releases that water that's attached to it. So as we're burning through those uh, glycogen stores, that's when we start to lose a lot of water and we see the pounds come off really quickly. But uh, most people who have gone on a low carbohydrate diet will attest to the fact that after a couple weeks, however long it takes your body to adjust, and depending also on how many, how much storage you have in your body, uh, you'll start to see the weight loss plateau, and that's one of those main reasons. Got so it, Jackie. You're basically just losing the water weight. Or mostly, you're actually yes. losing pounds, so it's just mostly weight. It's water. mostly water weight. I'm not going to say that some of it isn't uh, fat or even muscle, too, because mm -hmm. chances are you're changing the quality of your diet as well, um, and you're probably taking in fewer calories as well because you're cutting so many things out of your diet that, yes, you're probably losing a little bit of weight along the way, too, but nothing more than you would on um, by just purely... Uh, limiting your portion sizes right. and focusing on more uh, nutrient-dense foods. Oh. And is what about... Why, go ahead. Sorry. Is that why you gain the weight back so fast once you plateau? Like, so that's one of so the... so hard. Yes. Uh, so that's one of the main reasons why uh, research actually shows that uh, c low carbohydrate diets are really effective in losing weight quickly, but then over the long term, they even out in terms of weight loss uh, when compared to like low fat diets too. In the long run, you're losing about the same amount of weight uh, with both of them. 
So that brings up uh, the topic of fats. I mean, that's a dirty word, too. We, we are either supposed to take in practically nothing but fats or no fats at all. Yeah, so people are constantly living in the extremes. They're either trying to cut something out completely or uh, rely solely on that food or type of nutrient. So fats are actually necessary for energy and to digest some uh, minerals or some vitamins. So we never want to cut them out completely. Um, What's a good but, fat? Yeah, so not all fats, much like carbohydrates, not all fats are created equal. So... When it comes to fats, we can basically break them up into two different categories. So the first is saturated fats, and the second is unsaturated fats. And saturated fats are those fats that are the quote-unquote bad fats. So they're basically the ones that when we take in too many of them, they have a negative effect on our heart health. Um, so those are the ones that we really want to limit. Meanwhile, unsaturated and fats... And the saturated meat... Cheese, what are some of the saturated fats? Yeah, so saturated fats, those are some of the main sources of those. Uh, so high-fat meat products, especially red meats. Also uh, high-fat dairy. Um, most processed foods in general have very high contents of uh, saturated fat. And explain uh, what you mean by processed. So processed is kind of a difficult word to explain because... To some degree, most food is processed. Uh, but when I use the term processed, I'm talking about those highly processed foods that you wouldn't find in nature. Um, they've basically been manufactured in a facility to, um, to make a form that is essentially shelf-stable and uh, basically a lot of our convenience products. And would you say if you were in the grocery store and you were looking at the labeling of these processed foods, would it seldom be that the food itself is the first on the label? So one thing about processed foods that we're talking about here, a lot of times the ingredient list is actually very long. And it probably includes some words that you've never seen before that you can't pronounce. That's not to say that all of these words are bad because uh, sometimes different vitamins and minerals have other words associated with them that basically go on the ingredient list that uh, might make them seem scary, but they're not really. Um, but in general, they're going to have very long ingredient lists um, and they're going to be very high in fat, sugar, sodium, all of those nutrients that we know in excess can have negative effects on our health. So let's go back to a good fat. So good fats are what we call, or unsaturated fats are what we call good fats. So uh, those are basically heart healthy fats. So they help to protect our heart. So these come from mostly plant-based foods uh, like avocados, olive oil, nuts, seeds. Uh, these are really high in healthy fats and uh, specifically omega-3 fatty acids, uh, which are essential for our brain function, our memory, our overall cardiovascular system. Uh, and these are widely under-consumed, too, by most Americans. Also, fatty fish is a good source of omega-3 fatty acids. And so these are the types of fats that we really want to be mostly consuming um, when we are consuming our fats in our diet. And let's talk for a minute about fiber, because that wasn't a word I don't think that really came out until the 90s somewhere, and we all, fiber was the thing that we were all supposed to consume more of, and it was good for our digestive and our colons. Yeah, which it is. Uh, carbohydrate or fibers essentially are a type of carbohydrates, uh, which are found naturally in different plant-based foods. Uh, and these types of carbohydrates, unlike most carbohydrates, can't actually be digested by the body. Um, but just because they can't be digested doesn't mean they don't serve very important uh, purposes. So fiber can help to lower cholesterol, uh, decrease the risk of type 2 diabetes and stroke, um, and it can also help with weight loss or weight maintenance. And there's basically two different types of fiber, not to get too uh, far into this, but there's a soluble fiber and an insoluble fiber. Um, and both of these are very important for all of the things that I just listed, as well as uh, keeping our digestive system working smoothly and keep us feeling comfortable and all of that good stuff. And what's some examples 
of the different types of fiber? So soluble fiber is found a lot in uh, oats. Oats is one of the highest sources of soluble fiber. And also legumes and uh, the edible skin of many plants. Uh, Meanwhile, insoluble fiber is the good majority of the fiber that we're getting. And that's found in vegetables, fruit, uh, whole grains, all those foods that we know are very high in fiber. A lot of times it's the insoluble fiber. Um, let's move on to, um, diets. Let's talk Mm. about those. I know it's a dirty word. (laughs) Um, people have been dieting for decades. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't, I can't, you know, I was born in 1950 and I think, I think I knew the word diet. But, you know, even in the 50s, you were, people were always on diets. I'm always on a diet. Is that right? I'm on a diet right now. <laughs> as, as we, that was great, Jackie. As we sit here, I want everyone to know, as we sit here, Jackie's on a diet. <laughs> I don't know what that Probably means. Probably one of the diets we're about to talk about. Jackie's we'll on a diet. Yeah. I don't diet know many people that aren't on a diet. <laughs> so... Do you know any, because um, it's kind of fascinating, how this word diet came about? Do you, uh, do you know? And why it's so consuming? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, traditionally speaking, the word diet has been around forever. It's basically a general term to describe your overall pattern of eating. But somewhere along the way... Uh, oh, that's kinda, true. Yeah. But so, nobody <laughs> thinks of it nobody that way. So, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is funny. That's no. And that's why diet is a very normal word for me because I just talk about people's diets, meaning what they eat. But I always have to be very careful when I use that word because most people immediately interpret it as like a restrictive cheesecake. diet. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I have to go on a diet or I'm on a diet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. somewhere along the way, uh, we kind of shifted this word and turned it into something that was never necessarily intended to be. Um, so now it's basically used to describe a short-term change in your eating habits uh, that's characterized usually by rules and restriction. And usually it's in the pursuit of weight loss or health or something like that. Yeah, it uh, it's on all of our tongues. There's no, no doubt about that. But it seems like um, it's cyclical, too. That diets, or what we're calling diets, okay, so take the, the terminology that we just talked about, that where you're on a diet, not that we have a diet plan every day, which we do. I mean, whatever we eat is mm-hmm. the diet plan that we're on. But on a diet is cyclical. If we talked about some of the diets, the Atkins, the keto, the paleo, Mediterranean, vegan, vegetarian, low-carb, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have all these diets and people telling us uh, which one is best. Mm-hmm. and which one that we should look at and which one is going to cure some of our problems. So, Jackie, you said you're on a diet. What diet are you on? So I'm not on your traditional diet right now. So I'll, I'll say that my diet's more what kind of Kara's describing of watching what I'm eating, right? So my nutritional diet. So I've been working out for like a year now, right? I've been going to the gym, getting a personal trainer, trying to get healthier because I gained a lot of weight. And I was really concerned. I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to start dieting. So I am on a diet where I'm eating like every two to three hours. I'm eating a lot more lean meats. I'm not eating um, like white bread or any pastas or any red meats. If I do red meats, it's like once a week. But I'm only eating every three hours and a lot of lean meats, not like high, not a lot of salts or sugars, cutting those out slowly, um, which the first week goes very How's it going, miserable. Jackie? Well, I was very miserable the first week because the first day... Wait, we're going to have a therapy session. <laughs> How are you doing, Jackie? Yeah. So the first day I was, I was hungry because I was eating every three hours. Even though I was eating, but mentally I was like, well, this isn't enough. I'm only having a snack. I'm only eating a kiwi. I'm only, 
you know, I only had like a two slices of bread with my tuna instead of having like an entire tuna sandwich. And even if you were mayonnaise. full, yeah, even yeah. if you were full, you were satiated, but you weren't satisfied right, because it wasn't right. what you were I'm looking thinking, for. I'm eating this tuna and it has no mayonnaise. It's all oh, lemon, <laughs> lemon and avocado. Where's my mayonnaise? You know, so I was hungry. And the next day I was like having sugar withdrawals and I was like, I need sugar in my life, you know. <laughs> But this is my second week, and I've actually been doing pretty good. Like, I feel better this week. I'm used to eating every three hours now. I mean, when I have long meetings, my stomach's growling, and I'm like, I need to get out of here because I need to go eat. But it's good. I mean, I'm, I'm slowly adjusting to it, and I don't feel like I'm prohibiting myself from eating what I want either, you know? So, like, for example, today we had lentils. So I'm doing this with my coworker. Right. And we're both doing it together, which is awesome because we're meal prepping every Sunday. So it's great because we have breakfast, lunch, and we have a few dinners as well already made on Sunday. I love it. But I had lentils and my lentils, I added like nopal and I added uh, chorizo. Right. So I'm still like trying to give myself Mm -hmm. little things within my diet that I like. So that way I don't get tired of my diet and I can keep on doing it longer than just saying, hey, I'm going to do it just for like a week you know so Kara uh dissect a little bit about uh Jackie's need to tell us about her her total um dietary plan that was a kick I'm dying to know what (laughs) co-worker you're doing it with but um maybe not dissect that a bit as much as go through each of these diets with us the Atkins diet that was really big I don't hear much about it now um but that was huge wasn't the Atkins diet the high fat diet uh, Atkins diet is specifically a low carb diet. Um, it's not necessarily high fat in the sense that keto is, um, but it was really one of the first low carb popular diets out there. It came about in like the 1970s um, and it still exists today. Uh, it's kind of repackaging itself and rebranding itself and uh, trying to make it popular again. Uh, it still exists, but it was really one of the first ones to kickstart the low-carb kind of craze. And what about the keto diet? You know, I I hear so much about that and people that lose a whole lot of weight on the keto diet um, and say that it's very successful. Yeah, so the keto diet is not just a traditional low-carb diet. It's an extremely high-fat, extremely low-carb diet. Um, So the way it works is basically that As I mentioned earlier, uh, the body's preferred source of energy is carbohydrates. So when you restrict those um, to the degree that you do in the keto diet, or ketogenic is the full word, uh, when you restrict those to the degree that you do in the ketogenic diet, it causes, it forces your body basically to break down fat for fuel. And when it does this, it produces what we call ketones out of the fat. And that's what our bodies then rely on for energy. And at this point, when we're relying on those for energy, we're said to be in a state of ketosis. Um, And being in a state of ketosis, there is some research to support the health benefits of it. Um, But it's still a very new new concept, and there's not a whole lot of long-term research on it. Uh, But the biggest thing with the keto diet is that it's extremely difficult and really not sustainable because when I say very high fat, very low carb, I'm talking about 85% of your calories coming from fat, about 10% of your calories coming from protein, and only about 5% of your calories coming from carbs. And uh, just to put that into perspective, if you were to be following, let's say an 1800 calorie diet, that would mean that you would only be allotted 20 grams of carbohydrates for the entire day. And again, to put that into perspective, that's fewer carbohydrates than are in a small apple. Yep. So you can, that significantly reduces how many, how much food you can have. Even a lot of people, if you're really diligently following the keto diet, you can't even eat carrots because they're too high in carbohydrates. And those would be something that we would traditionally call a non-starchy vegetable, meaning that they don't have many carbs. And have um, they done any studies on the keto diet as to what it, it, it cause and effect on your cholesterol? So 
there aren't many long-term studies out there on the effect of the keto diet and uh, your heart health or your cholesterol levels. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first is, like I said, it's so unsustainable that uh, they really can't perform. The, it's difficult to find people who are able to stay in the state of ketosis uh, for so long, for so many years that they would uh, actually be able to get valid data on them. And then also um, any type of research in the nutrition field is very difficult because it's extremely hard to um, monitor it and make sure that everybody is adhering to the um, specific diet that they're supposed to be on. Because when you're doing long-term studies too, you can't be around the subjects all the time. You can't be um, monitoring every single thing that they eat. So there's some level of trust in there. And uh, since the keto diet is relatively new too, we don't have um, enough data really to, or we haven't been doing it for long enough to be able to mm -hmm. uh, say anything to that degree. And what about the paleo? So paleo diet, uh, the premise of that one is basically that we eat like our ancestors ate, uh, which at face value sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, they didn't eat those types of processed foods that we were talking about earlier. Um, and they definitely wouldn't rec recognize the majority of the foods that are in the food supply today. Um, so it eliminates refined sugar, uh, grains, dairy, legumes. Um, so it really does actually eliminate a lot of nutrient-dense foods. Um, and there are a lot of holes in this argument kind of too in that um, back when our ancestors uh, were living, Yes, their diet was different, but their entire lifestyle was different. They were hunting and gathering your food. If you're on the paleo diet, are you hunting and gathering <laughs> your meat and your blueberries? I don't think so. Only <laughs> the coyote outside. Yeah. <laughs> Only at Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah. And then even to uh, that point, too, most of the fruits and vegetables even today wouldn't be recognizable by our ancestors because they've evolved so much and they're not the same uh breed, basically, uh, for lack of a better word, as they were back in the day. Um, and they also weren't, like, spiralizing zucchini and putting their paleo chicken nuggets in their air fryers. <laughs> like, there's a lot of holes in this argument. Um, and so we're never going to get to the point where we're actually mimicking the diets of our ancestors is basically what I'm getting at. Um, but I think the overall premise is okay. It's just we overly restrict foods that I think we don't necessarily need to when we're looking at the paleo diet. And then let's talk about vegan and vegetarian before we get to Mediterranean. Um, total vegan diet. So vegans exclude all animal products, all animal byproducts. So, of course, no meat, but also no cheese, uh, milk, eggs, anything of that nature. Um, and there are a lot of benefits, of course, to eating more plant-based foods. But unless you're doing vegan for some type of ethical and animal rights reason, you really don't need to go to that extreme in order to get the benefits of a plant-based diet. Even we could all just benefit from including more plants and plant-based foods into our diets. Um, we don't necessarily go, need to go to the extreme of veganism because that in and of itself brings about some concerns as well because you're at greater risk for nutrient deficiencies when you are excluding so many different types of food from your diet. And vegetarian, um, same as vegan, only they add the dairy products? Yes. So it's a little bit looser in that aspect. Um, so not you don't run quite the same risk of nutrient deficiencies, but same general premise that not eating animal mm. products. And fish eating, pescatarian, they eat fish. Uh, they just don't eat meat. They eat dairy products. Correct. And raw food diet. So raw food diet, mostly, like it sounds, you just eat raw food so you don't cook them. Um, that's pretty much all there is to that one. And there's not a whole lot of research out there to support that either. And interestingly enough, there are some foods out there that when you cook them too, they become more nutritious. So um, take tomatoes, for instance. Uh, the uh, vitamin in their lycopene 
uh, or the antioxidant lycopene, that actually becomes more available when you cook tomatoes. So if you're just only eating raw foods, you're not always getting the optimum nutrition out of that food. So Mediterranean, that's when, when I read about that diet, I don't hear a lot of negative things about Mediterranean. I hear that it's pretty well balanced. And I would agree with that. So the Mediterranean diet, uh, the ironic thing about that is that it's not necessarily a diet in the way that, again, we typically use the word today. Um, it's more of a general eating pattern, mm -hmm. so more of that traditional term of diet. Um, and the Mediterranean diet is rooted in a lot of research, so it's based on the eating patterns of countries that border the Mediterranean Sea. So places like Greece, Italy, Spain. And of course, if you've ever visited those regions, you know that the cuisines in all of those places vary. Um, but the, what researchers have found is that the same general principles are shared among those nations. And those nations also tend to li live longer and healthier lives than Americans. So based on um, that observation, they developed the Mediterranean diet, which basically really just emphasizes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, fish and seafood, uh, nuts, beans, legumes, all those really nutrient-dense foods that we know of. Um, and it also includes, it doesn't cut out any type of, uh, it doesn't cut out any type of specific food group. It does recommend limiting uh, red meats and uh, really high-fat processed foods like that that we know in the long term can cause negative effects on our health, um, but it still allows for them to be incorporated occasionally in, in moderation. So before I ask you if someone comes to, to consult with you and they want to lose weight, um, how you go through all these diets with them and what you say, let's talk about intermittent fasting and also about the weight loss doctors with the B12 shots and the phenamine pills. I want to look like J-Lo, so I'm going to start intermittent <laughs> fasting, I'm just saying. Okay, so... I have 15 years. She's 50, so I have a few years to go. So we'll start with intermittent fasting then. Well, you're uh, eating every three hours will not work, probably. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jackie. <laughs> it might. Uh, it depends which hours you're eating in between. So intermittent fasting uh, isn't... It doesn't really matter what you eat, but when you eat. So that's the difference between intermittent fasting and all of these other diets that we've been talking about is that it's really focused on the when aspect. Um, so intermittent fasting, the concept of it is nothing new. I mean, people have been fasting for as long as we've been in existence. People fasted during periods of feast and famine when they couldn't find food, um, when they were actually hunting and gathering and couldn't find food. Um, so the argument for intermittent fasting is basically that our bodies were never designed to have consistent access to food for 12 to 15 hours, these long extended periods of time. Um, so recently, intermittent fasting has regained some popularity, especially for weight loss. Um, and most people who are on intermittent fasting for weight loss uh, follow what we call a time-restricted uh, intermittent fasting schedule. So this means that usually the most popular one is a 16-8, which means that you uh, f eat for basically eight hours of the day. Uh, so let's say 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then the remainder of the time you are fasting. Um, so in terms of intermittent fasting, uh, there's still a very limited research in this area. Um, most of the research that has been conducted has been on animal models, so not necessarily 100% uh, translatable to humans. Um, and also, there are a lot of different protocols out there with, uh, with regards to intermittent fasting, so it's hard to compare one study to the next two and draw any type of conclusion. Um, basically, if you're limiting the window of time that you're eating, you're probably going to eat fewer calories in general. A lot of people tend to, let's say, snack at night and things like that. Um, if you're intermittent fasting, you're going to be cutting those out. So unless you're having full-on feast for those eight hours, you're probably 
cutting out calories. And at the end of the day, we do know that decreasing our calorie intake is going to help us to lose weight. Um, But again, similar to a lot of the other diets that we've talked about, the big thing here is sustainability. So um, if this is something that can work for somebody's schedule and their lifestyle, um, I don't think that there's necessarily any potential harm in doing it. But my biggest concern is when we are modifying our lifestyle to fit our diet when really it should be the other way around. So I never want people to box themselves in so deep that, let's say, they normally eat from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and they get off of work late and they're really hungry, but, oh, it's outside of their window of eating time. So kitchen's closed. Guess I can't eat again until tomorrow. Um, there needs to be some type of flexibility in there, too, um, to make sure that people are still nourishing their bodies and getting all of the food that they need. And what about the B12 shots? So B12 is a type of vitamin, and it is specifically a water-soluble vitamin. Uh, and what that means is basically that it dissolves in water, and it uh, is taken throughout the body, and then Uh, Since it is water-soluble, it's not able to easily be stored in the body. So when we have more than the body needs, the excess is excreted. And I'll come back to that in a minute because that is important for this. Um, So B12 is found mostly in animal products. Um, So any type of vegetarians or vegans, anybody that's limiting their intake of animal products significantly is at risk for B12 deficiency. Also, our ability to um, absorb B12 decreases as we age. So the older that you get, the less likely you are to be able to absorb it as well. So you're also at increased risk for deficiency. Um, And B12 is really important for cellular energy production. Um, So that's why a lot of times it's marketed um, for both energy and then also uh, weight loss. Um, But a lot of times it's also marketed to young, otherwise healthy individuals. Um, So taking these shots can be beneficial if you are deficient in B12. Of course, you can see improvements then um, if you are already deficient in it. Same thing goes, though, for taking a B12 supplement, like a pill form. Um, You're going to see improvements if you are deficient in the vitamin. However, if you already have adequate amounts in your body, that extra B12 is just going to get excreted in the urine. So basically, if you're paying for shots and you already have enough B12, you're just buying some expensive pee. And what about, <laughs> what about the phenamine pills? Uh, so phenamine pills, those are just a specific type of weight loss pill. Um, so again, might help you to lose some weight, but... Again, it's a risk-benefit analysis, too. Um, Taking any type of weight loss pill is very risky. There's lots of potential side effects. We don't know all the long-term research on the effects that it has on our bodies. Um, And then also, it's just, it's not addressing the real issue here, which is uh, behaviors and changing behaviors. Um, So, yes, it can be a quick fix, um, but it's not one that's recommended. And also... In terms of B12 shots, these pills, anything that's being sold like this and marketed for weight loss, it's important to keep in mind that the diet industry and the weight loss industry, it's a business. And that's it's, right. It's a very, it's a very large profitable yes. business. Very large. It did not become a $72 billion industry in the U.S. alone by solving everybody's problems. It did it by giving people quick fixes and then creating repeat customers, basically. So um, giving them something that works for a little bit and then all of a sudden doesn't work and they need to go back and reinvest. So if someone comes to you for a consultation and they are looking at all these diets, Atkins, keto, paleo, Mediterranean, vegan, vegetarian, low-carb, um, the intermittent fasting, the, the eat every three hours like Jackie's trying to do. What is it that you 
how do you bring them down to reality and how do you get them onto a, uh, and I'll use the word diet plan, that they're going to be able to stick to? Because it's really about um, a lifestyle change and being able to do it long term, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the most effective diet is the type that you can stick with, too. Um, so I always like to take a step back. Um, the first thing that I do when I meet with anybody new is I just have them tell me a little bit about themselves. I get to know them. I get to know what their lifestyle's like, uh, what their normal eating pattern is right now, what their goals are, what their concerns are, what their uh, medical history is. Mm -hmm. uh, I take all of that into account so that I can get like a really big holistic picture of what we're working with. Um, and then from there, if somebody comes to me and they wanna go on a specific diet, I don't necessarily turn them away from that immediately. I say, okay, tell me a little bit more about that. Why do you want to go on this diet? Um, so I mentioned before that I went to school initially for engineering, and I think one of the biggest things that I learned from that was uh, what you call like a root cause analysis. So basically asking questions to get to the root cause of an issue. And that's really the approach that I take um, when I'm working with clients or patients is um, I was taught in engineering to ask why five times. Basically, if you continue asking why, you're eventually going to get to the root cause. Um, so that's kind of the approach that I take. And I continue to ask, OK, why do you want to do this? And then maybe it's, oh, well, I want to lose weight. OK, why do you want to lose weight? And I keep digging a little bit deeper until I get to the actual cause, which is maybe um, I'm really concerned that I, my weight's putting a strain on my health and I won't be able to be around to watch my grandkids grow up or I won't be able to play with them and things like that. And I find really what their pain point is and what the thing is that they want to address. And then I say, okay, and here are some ways, some small steps that we can take to address this. And I work with them. I don't tell them what to do, but I work with them to say, okay, so I see you're doing this right now. What is like a realistic change that you could make to maybe just slightly improve your health? Maybe you're eating fast food uh, for 10 meals a week. Um, can we, which you make that face, but it's very realistic for some people. <laughs> uh, can we cut that back to, you know, six or seven um, and then go from there and setting small goals? That well, what you're, what you're describing uh, is the antithesis of many of these diets. It's the antithesis because these mm -hmm. diets are just wow pow. They uh, are do it and and do it suddenly and do it fast, mm -hmm. and um, and they're so radical. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is it's kind of the little steps that you take that you get used to that, and then you add more steps. Absolutely. And in the long run, that is much more effective. But sadly, that doesn't make the headlines in the media because it's just well, not it's not a quick appealing. fix either. Yeah, it's, it's not, a not quick as fix. appealing, and it doesn't. It doesn't sell. The headlines don't sell the same yeah. way as yeah. these quick fixes. And you do. brought up something when Jackie was talking, uh, which I thought was possibly important, is the difference between being full and being satisfied. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. And for a long time, I didn't even realize there was a difference. And then I started working with people and I realized, you know, when you're there's a difference between if I tell you to eat uh, eight heads of romaine lettuce you're going to be full, probably kind of uncomfortably full, but you're not going to be satisfied because it's not like when we eat, it actually triggers an emotional response too. And it, a hormonal response, it changes all of our uh, hormones and everything and releases serotonin and things like that. And when we're restricting ourselves from the things that we actually want, we're never going to feel satisfied. So that's why you have to make small uh, changes. And like Jackie said, still not completely restrict um, any of the foods that you love and that you know that you will be able or will miss and won't be able to live without. Well, let's talk about sugar. That's another bad word. Um, you know, I, I remember Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> not, not for my children, but my generation when we were young. Uh, 
Kool-Aid was the big drink. And you had huge things oh, yeah. of sugar always I remember in the cupboard. That. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it sugar was just, it was uh, a natural food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, uh, nobody thought that it was uh, bad for you. Mm-hmm. But then type 2 diabetes back in the 1950s uh, was not the epidemic that it is now. So talk about sugar a little bit and being able to decrease our sugar in an appropriate manner. Um, And then why you think diabetes has such a foothold in our society? Yeah, so sugar is basically uh, just a form of carbohydrates. And again, carbohydrates is a dirty word, so of course sugar is too. Um, And yes, we consume way more sugar than we realistically need or uh, probably should because it does in the long run, have negative effects on our health. Um, But what we fail to recognize, too, is that, again, like I've said with a lot of things, not all sugar is created equal necessarily. Um, So our bodies do rely on sugar in order to fuel our cells um, because sugar is basically just the simplest form of a carbohydrate. So... To take a step back, um, I think it's important to really understand or at least have a basic understanding of how the body processes carbohydrates in order to understand diabetes and understand sugar. Uh, So when we eat carbohydrates, those carbohydrates are broken down in our body to glucose, which is basically just a fancy term for sugar. And once it's in our bodies, it goes into the bloodstream where it gets distributed to all of our cells who, again, thrive off of sugar. They need it to produce energy. Um, But uh, carbohydrates and the sugar and glucose in carbohydrates fuel our body kind of like gasoline fuels a car. So just having gas in your tank isn't enough to make the car actually run. Uh, So in order for the car to actually run, you need that key in the ignition to turn it on and to actually be able to burn that car, uh, burn the gas for fuel. So in our bodies, just having that sugar in our blood is not enough. Uh, the sugar actually has to be able to get into the cells where they can metabolize it and use it for energy. And in order for the sugar to get into the cells, it actually requires a key, like I mentioned, and that key is insulin which is a hormone that's produced in the pancreas. Um, And insulin basically uh, unlocks the door to the cells and lets the sugar in. Uh, So if the cells, though, are already full enough with sugar, then the extra sugar will either go uh, to the liver to be stored as glycogen, as I mentioned earlier, or uh, be stored as fat. Um, So again, having too much sugar will ultimately likely cause it to be stored as fat. So that's an issue there. Um, But again, there's sugar in everything. So uh, yes, of course, all of the sweets and the desserts and the pastries uh, that we naturally think of, but also fruits and vegetables and dairy products, those all have naturally occurring sugars. Um, So a lot of people talk about being sugar-free, but that's Realistically, not possible. You wouldn't be able to live without all of those foods that have some degree of sugar in them. So, so what what you're saying is there's good sugars. Mm-hmm. There's not so good sugars. Yes, and even the good sugars. I mean, that's not to say that you should go eat eight cups of fruit every day, um, because of course anything in excess is can have negative effects as well. Um, And eating excess calories in any form, of course, or excess sugar in any form can cause our bodies to uh, gain weight or also just have other negative health effects. Um, But yes, we can't lump all sugars into just the term sugar. There's added sugars, which um, are basically added during the manufacturing process. Um, And then there's natural sugars that occur in nature. And we know that type 2 diabetes is on the on the rise. I know that um, that you teach nutrition classes and are at access to health care. Are they open to the public? They are. So 
At Access the Healthcare Network, uh, we have a lot of different services uh, for anybody who's interested in learning more about nutrition, uh, whether it be generalized or disease-specific, like diabetes, as you mentioned. Um, so we offer both, uh, we have three uh, dietitians on staff who teach these classes and meet with clients individually. And we uh, offer both one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling. And this is for anybody who um, maybe they do have a recent diagnosis or a chronic condition and they're looking to manage that. Maybe they want to lose weight and they've tried all of these diets and they've been unsuccessful and they are kind of at a loss of what to do. Uh, maybe they're just overwhelmed and don't even know where to start. Maybe they they kind of know where to start and just need some support. Uh, we offer one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling where, as I mentioned earlier, we can sit down with them and we can kind of comb through all of these details because uh, nutrition as a science is very complicated, but the act of actually nourishing our bodies doesn't have to be that complicated, but sometimes you just need someone to help kind of break it down for you and also to help support you along the way. And that's what we're there for. And if someone was interested, where would they call Kara? Uh, so they would call our health education department. And that number is uh, area code 775-284-1898. Okay. And then in addition to the one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling, we do also offer uh, group-based classes, um, both disease-specific. So we offer a diabetes uh, self-management education class and then also a chronic disease self-management education class. And uh, both of these are evidence-based. They're proven to help people live better, longer, healthier lives. Um, they are well-researched. And uh, again, it provides a lot of general information. Um, so if somebody's interested in learning more specific, that's when we would also uh, recommend that they do the nutrition counseling one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But we do offer those uh, services as well. And then also uh, cooking classes, too, because we realize that we can't just tell people um, or recommend foods to people if they don't even know maybe how to cook them or um, just even where to start. Or maybe they just think that they hate cooking. I love um, helping people to find ways to make food fun again. So um, that's really what that, those cooking classes are for, too, then. Fabulous. Uh, before we leave, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you what are the five best foods to eat and what are the five worst? So I, I don't think you'll be surprised by my answer. Um, I would say that there are no five best or five worst foods. I'm oh, kind of taking a cop yeah, out here. Yeah, you really are. <laughs> um, because, again, nutrition is very personal. So Yes, there are more nutrient-dense foods, and those are the ones that I would categorize as the healthiest foods that we should be eating more of. Uh, and those are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, lean meats and seafood, uh, legumes, plant-based uh, proteins. All of those are really healthy foods. But when you start to get into the specific foods themselves, I mean, that's just on a case-by-case -case basis. Because also, uh, yes, Kale is an extremely nutritious, nutrient-dense food. Um, but if somebody finds that every time they eat kale, they feel very bloated and uncomfortable and they just don't feel good after they eat it, I'm not going to recommend that they eat kale. Uh, so it is very uh, personalized, too. So that's why. And then also, I don't like necessarily categorizing foods as good or bad. Um, because I think that kind of does two things. So the first one is it makes those quote-unquote bad foods a lot more appealing because they suddenly become like that forbidden fruit that uh, we want but we can't have or we want but we think we can't have. And then uh, also it also uh, kind of ties in morality and brings morality into our food choices and it ties our uh, like self-worth in with our food choices. So suddenly if we choose a food that's quote unquote bad, we view ourselves as quote unquote bad. And then that triggers a whole long list of feelings like guilt, shame. And then suddenly you are just in this uh, 
like self and all these self-deprecating thoughts and then you can't get out of those and it's just a vicious cycle. So I think just focusing on some of those nutrient-dense foods that I recommended earlier um, is the best way to go, really. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, I know that both Jackie and I have a lot more questions that we'd love to ask. I'd love to do a second podcast sometime, talk a little bit more about diabetes and uh, chronic disease management. And I'd also love to talk about the food deserts and the irony uh, that we have even any famine in the entire world uh, sort of amazes me when, of course, we have more food than we could possibly eat. But I want to thank you for being on, and it's been a fabulous conversation. I hope that everybody's enjoyed it. We've been talking today about nutrition, and we've been talking with Kara Hawkrider, who is a dietitian with Access to Healthcare Network. She talked to us about classes that we're doing at Access to Healthcare, and if you're interested in those, you can call 775-284-1898. 2841898. Thank you for listening to our podcast and for a list of future podcasts go to accesstohealthcare.org/podcasts.